0: Good morning. Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning
1: as we come together as God's people. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing our praises to God together. My heart is
0: overwhelmed And I cannot hear your voice I'll hold on to what is true Though I cannot see If the storms of life they come And the road ahead gets steep I will lift these hands in faith I will believe I'll
1: remind You may be
2: seated. Pray to the Lord. Pray to him while he can be found. For he is near us whenever we pray his eyes open, his ears attentive, listening to what is said in hearts and whispers, when tears fall down cheeks in silence, when no words can be said but thank you, according to his compassion, according to his kindness and his great love, he is our dwelling place. So cry aloud, call on him, bowed on bended knees, confess sins, offer petitions, watch and pray, find your own mountainside, your own garden of Gethsemane. Pray in lonely places when things are good and not so good. Pray for those who are unable to pray for themselves. Stand guard. Mind your post. Stand on the wall in the gap as words lifted to God build bridges to nations. Prayers are seeds planted even if you never get to see them grow. God is the gardener paying close attention to the soil of prayers lifted for generations yet to be born in the place of prayer is where peace can be found and we may not know how or why but we know who and when you are spent of words to pray he prays for you taking all the things you can't give voice to surrendering them at the feet of one who is all powerful whose words extend past time whose love is so wide and deep that it is immeasurable Pray and don't give up. Pray earnestly. Raise your voice and quiet your soul that God may dwell in your heart. Pray when you're anxious. Pray when you're afraid. Be watchful and thankful. Pray continually. Pray to the Father, to a God who is faithful, to a God who hears. Cry out for the living God.
3: We are beginning today our three-week, 24-hour prayer vigil, and we want to do just what this video was saying. We want to pray. Pray to God about all the things that come to us. We want prayer to be an opportunity to listen to God, to speak to God, to pour out our hearts before God, to pray for others, to pray for ourselves, pray for our world. And we want you to be involved and so we want to encourage you to uh, sign up for an hour in the prayer room. We have some new things going on this, uh, this year in the prayer room. We have some new ways of connecting. Sometimes people say, how do I spend an hour praying? It's overwhelming. There are a lot of things you can do uh, in order to help you as you pray. We have guides that will lead you through 60 minutes of praying for a variety of things. And most people I talk to who are worried about how they're going to spend 60 minutes praying come out thinking that wasn't enough time. It went way too fast. So we want to really encourage you to be a part of this. Um, We have had so many amazing things that have happened in the life of our church and beyond in people's lives, in relationships, because of being involved in the prayer vigil. And we want to give you this opportunity to be involved. There are times all throughout the day, you know, some people like coming in the middle of the night. It's quiet. And uh, no distractions. Some people like coming in the busyness of the day and just taking an hour away from that. Whatever works for you, come. And I'm going to encourage you, even during the service, and I don't usually like to tell people to get on the Internet on your phone while we're in church, but today I'll give you permission to do that. Uh, You can go to the church website, hcvchurch.org, and uh, you can see the slider at the beginning, and that will lead you to signing up. And uh, just do it now if you want. Uh, there's also a computer in the back. You sign up anytime. If being online is difficult for you, just call the church office. We'll get you signed up. But we, we really want to fill up all of these hours, uh, 504 hours of, of praying together. And we want to encourage you to be a part of that. If you have questions about it, talk to me afterwards or one of the pastors. Uh, we'll be glad to help you with that. Also, this year our theme is Circles of Prayer. And there are some things in the uh, prayer room that are specifically about circles and different ways in which that that metaphor can speak to our praying. But we're also going to have some times where we pray corporately together. Most of the praying is done individually, though you're welcome to bring as many people with you as you want. But we have specific times this Thursday at noon and Thursday at 8 p.m. Just come, whoever's there. We'll have some people who will lead the prayer time elders or pastors, and we will be uh, leading that time of just praying together as we join our hearts in the circle of prayer. So we really hope you will be involved in this, uh, this prayer event and uh, see what God wants to do in us and through us. We're going to ask the ushers come now and help us uh, in collecting our offering.
0: body are Join us in one spirit
3: Together, And if you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we come today acknowledging your greatness, your power, your love, your spirit at work in our lives and in this place. In this hour of worship, our desire is to hear you, to see you, and to surrender ourselves to you. Father, we come to you in this spirit of surrender and and listening and speaking because of who you are. You are good and merciful and gracious. And we are confident of you. Father, this morning there are many things that might be burdening us. People who are grieving, comfort them people who are wrestling with health issues, pour out your spirit of healing on Bruce Brenneman and Bill Roski, on Beverett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Alton Shea, Isla Shea, Dick Gould, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and others who are on our minds and hearts today. Father, we pray for relationships that are not where we wish they would be, We ask for your grace to help us in whatever part our role may be to bring about healing. And your spirit would work miraculously in all of our relationships. Father, we pray for this world. We are continually burdened by the ongoing death and struggle from the Ebola virus. Bring an end to this. We are burdened about the violence and the war that we see in so many places of the world, including our own country. We are especially burdened about what is happening with ISIS. We pray, Father, that in your power you would bring an end to this evil and that you would work miraculously through your church and your people. We pray for our brothers and sisters, many who are facing such difficult circumstances that you'd give them courage and your spirit. We think especially of the people in the Central African Republic who have been recently killed. Among them, these two pastors. We pray for the families of Pastor Thomas and Pastor Pierre and ask that you would bring healing to them and comfort to them Encourage to our brothers and sisters in this nation of great need. Bring an end to the violence, Father. And let your church stand tall in every circumstance. Father, we pray that you would help us as we move into this time of intense praying in our church. It's a sacrifice to come and to spend an hour or more praying. And yet, Father, It's a joy and a privilege. Inspire us to to want to be in your presence and to step outside of what might be comfortable for us or easy for us and speak into our lives as we pray together. Bring transformation to this place and to every place that we may go because of your spirit at work in us as we pray. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. These prayers, all of our prayers. We offer our prayers in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us with an everlasting love, who has promised to come back for his children. It's in his name we offer our prayers with confidence. Amen. Amen.
1: This morning's scripture reading comes to us from the first letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue... Two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is the word of the Lord.
3: I invite you to stand and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning. hard to believe that we are uh, moving the halfway point of these sermons uh, in the series. And uh, someone said the other day, it's time to turn the bookmark over. Uh, the one side is green, the other side is red. And it seems fitting to me that the uh, we're turning over to the red side because there are some hot issues on this side that we're going to be dealing with today, one of those. This is where we get the title. You know, you think the title is, You asked for it, but actually this is the day where I'm saying to you, hey, you asked for it, so here it is. Um, So, and today we're talking about uh, the role of women in the church. And as you may or may not be aware, it is a divisive issue. Someone said to me, it's an odd way to ask the question, what are women allowed to do in the church? They said, shouldn't we just as easily ask what are men allowed to do in the church? And that just belies the fact that we, quite frankly, are in innate prejudice. That we only think that we have to discuss what women can do. And we never think about the fact that there would be limitations on men. Now, you've got to understand my perspective, uh, just so you know up front. My grandmother was a, an ordained minister in the Wesleyan Church. My mother is an ordained minister. My wife is an ordained minister. So you can kind of guess my perspective about this. I'm just going to lay that out right right up front. But I do want to try to be fair because, you know, when people are asked, why do do you limit what women can do in the church? The answer is almost always because the Bible says so. So let's look at what the Bible says. I think that's important. So I want to quickly walk us through some of the key things about the Scriptures, talking about women, talking about women and the church and roles. Because you've got to begin a creation because here's where it starts. And when women are created, the woman is created, it is very clear women and men are created equal. Genesis one twenty six says God created human beings, male and female. He created them in His image. It doesn't say created a man in his image and then the woman was inferior to that. There are many of the cultures around Israel that would say that. That uh, women are created in, in an inferior way, but not Israel. That is not what we get in the biblical record in Genesis. What's intriguing is that sometimes people will say, well, women are created as a helper for the man. That the woman is... Is, is a helper to him. That's why she was created. And in our minds, helper means inferior. You know, if someone is your helper, they are your assistant. They are someone who does jobs you don't want to do or you don't have time to do. They are, they are relegated to things that, you know, are second nature, second class. But that Hebrew word that is that is translated helper in Genesis 2.18 where God says, we need to have a helper for you, man, is actually most of the time, in fact, almost always, it's not used all that many times, but almost always, it is actually the word that's used to describe God. It is one of the key words to describe Yahweh in the Old Testament. A few examples, Psalm 33, verse 20 says, We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. I, uh, Psalm 70, verse 5, talks about, says, come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, says, I look under the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 124, 8, says, you, O God, are, you are my, help. my help is in you. In the name of the Lord, my maker of heaven and earth. And these are just samplings. It is almost always connected to God. So to say that helper is an inferior idea would be to say that God is inferior to us. And we know that's not true. A better translation of that term might be rescuer. And you might say that the woman rescues the man from loneliness from what is missing in him that God knows he needs. And together, they become human beings. They become what humanity is supposed to be. So it's not a lesser created being, they're equal. Move on to the Old Testament, on in the Old Testament. There are two fascinating stories in the Old Testament that I keep asking myself, why in the world are these stories here? Because in in a culture that is far more patriarchal than ours is, here are these two stories where women are the heroes and in at least one of the stories, the men don't want to do anything without the women leading. First stories of Deborah, just Judges 4 and 5. Israelites have again sinned against God. They've rejected him. God sends another nation to oppress them. They cry out to God. It's this repeated uh, history throughout Judges. And God sends them a judge, a leader, a ruler to rescue them. These are people like Gideon, Samson, Samuel. And in this particular story, it's Deborah. Deborah is the judge. Actually, she's more than a judge. She's she's spoken of in higher terms than some of the others are because she's also a prophetess. She speaks the word of God to the people. And it's through Deborah and her leadership that Israel defeats their enemy. And obviously through the, the spirit of God with them. But she is the spearhead. She's the leader of that. And they are set free. You move on to 2 Kings 22. 2 Chronicles 34 is the same story. Josiah is 8 years old when he becomes king of Judah. When he's 16, he decides that there's a lot of bad things going on here. And he's a man after God's own heart like David. And so he says, let's start reforming our nation. And a part of that about 4 years later is that they begin fixing up the temple that's been in in disrepair, and one of the things that they just come across is the book of the law, what God gave Moses, and they take it, Hilkiah the priest takes it to the king, and they read it to him, and the king begins to lament and tear his clothes in mourning, because they are not doing what the book of the law says, and he says to Hilkiah the priest, go inquire of the Lord to see what we're supposed to do, because otherwise we're going we're to receive God's judgment once again. He doesn't tell him who to go to. He just says, go inquire of the Lord. Get a word from God about what we're supposed to do. And where does the priest turn? He turns to Huldah the prophetess. She is the most godly leader he can think of in this moment of need. And she gives, it says, Huldah spoke to them the word of God. And out of that word, the nation is is uh, reconciled to God and they begin to worship as they are intended to. I keep asking myself, okay, in this patriarchal culture, why are these two stories here? And I'm convinced they are are here because they they don't tell us. We don't get all the stories of Israel's history. We don't even know all the judges. But they're here, I'm convinced, because God wants us to understand His plan. His perfect plan for humanity is equality. It is not levels or classes of people. It's equality. But for God to say to Israel in this patriarchal culture, I want you to jump from here to my perfect plan, is more than they can take. So he progressively reveals that plan, moving them forward. You have an example of that in the Old Testament. It says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And a lot of people interpret that as, I have the right to wreak vengeance on someone who hurts me. The reality is the context of the passage is in the culture. If someone put out your eye, you would take their life. If someone knocked out your tooth, you, you might cut off their hand. And God says, hold a time out. We don't operate that way. The most you can do is what was done to you. And that would be radical for the people of that culture, for the Israelites. Say, what? That's all I get? That's the most I can do in, in revenge for what has been done to me? God says, yes, that's the most you get. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. When we get to the New Testament and Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I'm telling you, someone hits you on the cheek, you turn to them the other cheek. Now we're getting to the plan that God really has in mind from the beginning, that when, when his people are offended we forgive and we love. We don't strike back. But for God to say that to Israel, blow their minds. I mean, as it is, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is beyond what they're used to. And I think these stories of... of of women leaders in the Old Testament and, and God putting them in these places of leadership are glimpses that we get of what God's perfect plan is. And, and what's fascinating to me is that the writer of these p- stories doesn't seem surprised by them at all. There's no sense of, can you believe what God did here? He used women to lead Israel? No, it's impossible. You don't get that at all. It's just so matter of fact. Oh yeah, the next judge was Deborah. They went to Holden. Of course they did. Why would they go anywhere else? And we see ultimately God's plan. And when we come to Jesus, then in the New Testament, we, hear, we see him even more and more in, in, in this perspective of God's perfect plan with women. One example of that is Luke chapter 10. The story of Mary and Martha. Jesus comes to their house. Lazarus is, is their brother. He comes to their house. They, they, Mary is is uh, in the In with Jesus, listening to him teach. Martha's in the kitchen. She's frantic. She gets upset. She goes to Jesus. You tell her to come help me. And Jesus says, Mary's okay. You leave her alone. Just, you know, just calm down. You don't need to do so much, Martha. It's okay. N.T. Wright says that if you look at the culture... And many people even today who live in Middle Eastern cultures would read this story. And one of the first things they would see is what in the world is Mary doing at the feet of Jesus? Because in a house, that's the place where only males are allowed to go. Only males are allowed to learn the kind of, from a rabbi. Because the purpose of learning from a rabbi is to go teach other people. And women aren't allowed to teach other people. So why would she sit here and do that? Because Jesus says women are allowed to teach other people. And Mary's all ups, Martha's upset, not just because of the thing with the kitchen, but also because Mary has completely crossed what she considers appropriate social boundaries. And Jesus says what Mary is doing is good. You come to the end of the Gospels and the resurrection story... In all the resurrection stories, women are the first witnesses of the resurrection, which is significant. We read that and think it doesn't seem like a big deal. But in their culture, by and large, women were unreliable witnesses. If they saw something happen, you would never call them to court because their word would mean nothing. And yet here are the gospel writers saying, first witnesses, women. They go back and tell the disciples, maybe that's why the disciples don't believe them. They don't trust them, but the writers of Scripture seem to trust them. And then as they go forth, Jesus and the angels say, You go be my first messengers. Go tell the disciples that I'm risen and I'm going to meet them. And so you see this New Testament gospel perspective. You move on into the book of Acts, and we find in Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, the people Peter says, remember Joel's prophecy that says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people and men and women, sons and daughters are going to prophesy my word. get to the later part of Acts 21 and we find that uh, Paul is on one of his journeys and he comes to the home of Philip the evangelist. And the writer just says parenthetically, oh, yeah, by the way, he has four daughters and all of them are prophets. They speak the word of God to people. Move into the end of the book of Romans, the 16th chapter. It's one of those places that we tend to not read much because it's just greetings. You know, Paul says, greet uh, so-and-so, greet Lydia, greet Yodae, greet these people. And what we don't realize in that list is that there are many women who are part of that list and they are are called leaders, co-leaders, deacons, at the end of... Philippians chapter 4, beginning of chapter 4, Paul talks about these two women who are leaders in the church. As we get the sense in the New Testament church that women are in all kinds of places of leadership. It is the practice. And that then brings us to the problem. The problem is the passage we read this morning and a similar passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. These two passages are, by and large, the places that people go to, in their mind, prove that women should be limited in what they're allowed to do in the church, their roles in the church. You read these passages, I I don't know exactly, it's hard for me to, you know, put myself into the shoes of women listening to what Paul writes. But it has to be painful to read that. I mean, it had to be painful when I was talking, you know, with the, We have women reading today, and I know that it was odd, I think, for Sarah to read that passage this morning... ...since she is reading to us about women being silent in the church by not being silent in the church. That was intentional, by the way. It wasn't an accident. But, you know, it's hard to get those words stick in the back of your throat. And any of us who have ever been in a position where we have been looked at by a group of people as inferior can kind of get a sense of this perspective. And I understand, when you read these passages like this, why people think Paul's a male chauvinist pig. I understand why people feel that way. But that's only because we haven't really understood the context of what Paul is saying, at least in my opinion. And you're going to get two different opinions about this, but this is what I think Paul is saying. I think Paul is making... A statement about a local church situation dealing with a specific situation, not trying to make a general rule. Because again, you have two passages where Paul makes these statements as opposed to the whole history of God's people where women are in leadership. And so at the very least, they balance each other out. But in my mind, actions speak louder than words. And that's why I believe that Paul is addressing a specific problem in these specific places. And without going into great detail, the passage in, second, in First Timothy that, that talks about women being uh, silent in the church, I think it's dealing with a heresy in the church. Timothy's work is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, as in all the churches, heresies arise. That's why, that's why the letters are written to address these things, these problems. In some cases, the men are having the struggle and are dealing with issues. In other places, like these two, women are having the struggle. And probably in Ephesus, you have a situation where this heresy has arisen and the women, for some reason, are the most vocal proponents of it or they are most susceptible to it. And so Paul is addressing that specific issue That they need to be careful, they need to be quiet about promoting this heresy and they need to submit to the authority of the leaders of the church. You come to the passage that we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 14 and there are a number of theories about this. One is that it's in the context of speaking in tongues and that, that there are some women in the church who are abusing that privilege as there are others in the church abusing that privilege. And Paul singles them out and says you can't do that. Another theory is that the, um, that the women are, are, are coming to church and they are having conversations with men before and after the church outside of the place of worship and creating emotional bonds with each other week after week as they gather. And that's unhealthy for them, as you can imagine. And Paul's point is, stop having these conversations like that that are getting between you as a woman and your husband by creating this unhealthy bond with another man and has nothing to do with speaking in church. And, you know, there are there are a, a, a variety of theories that are related to what exactly Paul is saying. But I think there is strong evidence to say that he... He is more than likely talking about a specific situation as opposed to a general rule. Again, you put it in the context of the whole, and that makes sense, at least it does to me. Now, I realize it's not going to make sense to everyone. That's why people feel so strongly about it. But see, that brings me back to that question. Why do we feel so strongly about this? For me, it's a matter of value and worth. Because quite frankly, if you say someone is not allowed to, care, to fulfill a role in the church, they've been they have gifts, they have abilities, but we but we don't let them use them. We limit how they can use them simply because of how they were born. Then that says these are second class people. I don't I don't know how else you can get around that. We're saying there are limitations put on them simply because of how they were born, despite their gifts, despite their abilities. I I was reading this week from someone, a famous pastor who is on the radio and internet a lot this week, who is vehemently opposed to women in leadership roles in the church. And he said, I can't deny the fact that women have gifts and abilities, but this is the way God made it, so deal with it. I mean, in essence, that's what he was saying. And I just find that hard to grasp. What, what possible logic could God have to say, I'm going to limit people whom I've gifted? And the argument is, well, this is what the Bible says, this is what God says, and so that's the way it is. And again, that's taking a couple of passages and ignoring the bigger context and the and the bigger volume of scripture. And all I can figure is that it is it, it is there's a desire to limit because quite frankly most of the time our discussion about roles in the church is centered around power not around submission. And the kingdom is not about grasping for power. It's about submitting ourselves to God and to one another. And we get that so confused. When we get to heaven, do you think there's going to be class structures in heaven? Do you think in heaven that men will have a higher place than women will? I can't imagine that. I can't fathom that that will be the case. And if that's what heaven will be like, why would we think how we live on earth would be different? I mean, Jesus says that we are to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is one of the ways in which we do that. One of the ways in which we accomplish that. Now, we're not saying that women should... should Replace men as leaders. We're simply saying, everyone has the freedom to use their gifts. However, God leads them to use those gifts. And we're not putting barriers and boundaries on people. Because Paul writes over and over again, the kingdom, Christ came, Christ gave his life, Christ's body was broken in order to break down barriers. And that's why he writes in the song that saying a minute ago that in, in Christ there is no such thing as slave or free or male or female or Jew or Gentile. Those kinds of class structures are broken down and shattered. We're all one in Christ. And either we're one in Christ or we're not. Not different levels and classes in the church. You know, John Wesley, uh, he had many women leaders, even women pastors, which was a pretty big deal in the 18th century. But he was he was heavily criticized for that, and not just for having women in ministry, but also the a lower class of people that he promoted in ministry and one one famous uh, pastor who was a contemporary of Wesley's uh, chastised him about letting these people be leaders in the church and he said to Wesley, you know let the, let the bakers go back to their ovens, let the blacksmiths go back to their buyers, let the let the, the barbers go back to their basins. They shouldn't be doing these kinds of things. They're not fit for this. But Wesley saw that these very people were the, were the foundation, the center of the church. There's no place for classes in the kingdom of God. We are one in Christ. And the issue, that most, more often than not, I'm convinced... It comes back to power. That's why we ask the question who gets to lead? Who gets to be in control? Who, who makes decisions? Who has power? And the kingdom of God is never about power, it's about submission, surrender, humility, respect, freedom in Christ. Sometimes people will say, "Well, you know, the culture out there is—we're we're, we're trying to be countercultural by not—not not by limiting what women can do in the church because of, in their opinion, radical feminism." But even if—even if there is a sense in the in the culture of radical feminism, I mean, I'm convinced, quite frankly, that one of the reasons that that has arisen is because of the view the church has taken of women. It made—I think—if the church had had done what we should have done and, and eliminated classes in the church, some of the things we see in culture would have been unnecessary. And there wouldn't be the sense of animosity toward the church. And quite frankly, that's not really what the culture is like. You ask any woman who is in the workforce in the culture, and she will tell you that there are far more hurdles to overcome than women have than men. They, they get paid less on average they they are treated differently they have they have to they have to be so much more careful than men do about how they act and what they do there are definitely barriers and limitations and weight put on women that not put on men what we're trying to do in the church now in in the freedom we have in Christ is to be countercultural and say none of that stuff exists in the church This is the one place where you're going to find freedom. This is the one place where we're going to remove the barriers. This is the one place where we all come together and we use our gifts for the kingdom. For what Christ wants to do in us and through us and for us. I think one of the issues we wrestle with is a willingness to allow God to speak into our lives through whomever he desires to speak. And I'm convinced, I know this in my own experience, that often the most profound voice in my life comes from people that I tend to look down on or see as inferior or believe that God could never speak to me through them. And maybe the same is true for you. Why does God do that? Because one of the key elements of the kingdom is humility and surrender and submission. So, are we willing to do that? Even if your perspective of the kingdom may be different, do you still believe that the kingdom is about humility and surrender? And submission, it's the call of God. It's the way of Christ. And I am convinced it is the call of God on every one of us as well. In Christ, there is not male or female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, In Christ, those barriers are shattered. We are one in him. And we want to have the freedom to use our gifts however God designs them. I mentioned about Wesley and uh, his, his leadership. He learned that from his mother. Susanna was the most godly person in his life. And uh, she had a practice of gathering her children in the in the Parsonage kitchen. Her husband, John's father, was a, was a priest in the Church of England. And she would gather the children in the kitchen on Sunday nights and teach them. Her, her, uh, they became such popular times that the servants in their home wanted to join them. And pretty soon, their families wanted to join them. And the people in the parish wanted to join them. And there was a time when ...when John's father was away on business for a while... ...and he had an assistant pastor, a curate... ...who who wrote to him and complained... ...because more people were coming to Susanna's meetings in her kitchen... ...up to 200 people, and it had a pretty big kitchen. She'd come to this, to this place to hear her teach... ...then we're coming to hear him on Sunday mornings. And so he wrote to John's father and said... ...you've got to do something about this. And he wrote to Susanna and said... This is upsetting the curate, you gotta stop. And she wrote him back and said, If you can promise me with without hesitation, that when I get to heaven I will not be held accountable for the souls that might have been lost because I didn't do this, then I'll stop. But if you can't guarantee me that, I'm gonna keep teaching. She kept teaching. It's about using our gifts. It's about loving Christ and the church. It's about humility and surrender. It's about the unity of the Spirit. And instead of looking for ways that divide us, think about ways that unite us and committing ourselves to let God speak into our lives in any way he chooses, through his Holy Spirit and through his grace. Heavenly Father, for some of us, this is a real struggle. For all of us, humility and submission and surrender are difficult. Father, help us. Help us to see as you see. Help us to to be connected to each other the way you want us. And we pray, Father, that you would work miraculously in this body of believers and beyond us, that we might live your kingdom principles through the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Please stand and join us as we sing.
0: Christ you